A very warm welcome to Andrew Fisher, who was Director of Policy for the Labour Party between 2016 and 2019. Notable years. And the author of a book about economic policy in the UK and the financial crash of 2007-8. And the book is called The Failed Experiment. Andrew is going to look back to when Labour found itself in a similar position in the 1990s to the current one where the government is in crisis and Labour is enjoying a strong polling lead. So he's going to look at that in a kind of historical perspective and he will draw on similar experiences in the 1950s and 60s that ask the very important question what Labour needs to do today to win the next general election. Bated breath. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, thanks, Penny, and, and thanks, Margaret and, and Mick, as well, for the invitation as well and for the introduction. Um, so I'm going to try and speak for no more than 15 minutes, mainly because I always think the discussion is far more um, interesting and actually, um, even with the most interesting speakers, which I won't claim to be, people just tend to switch off after a while. Um, and it, you know, so I'll, I'll try and be succinct, punchy, stimulate a bit of debate and then shut up and let the debate take place, basically. So um, as we all know, Labour's ahead in the polls at the moment. Um, and there's a growing confidence, I think, that Labour can form the next government. The latest YouGov poll puts us six points ahead. The opinion poll in the Observer uh, at the weekend had us five points ahead. And both of those were before the Sue Gray report came out and the notice of the Met Police investigating 12 parties within Downing Street, which as far as I know, is a record for the amount of parties in one household during lockdown um, that the police have investigated. But I'm trying to get somebody to FOI that to find out for sure. Um, so uh, we're midterm, we're over two years on now uh, from the last election and we're just over two years away from when the next general election has to be, it has to be by December 2024, so we're very, very much in that kind of midterm territory. And it's worth recalling, um, before I get on to the 90s, uh, that Ed Miliband enjoyed sizeable polling leads throughout his tenure as leader, um, peaked in his midterm sort of period and that for much of the latter half of 2017 and indeed the first half of 2018 and even some of 2019 Jeremy Corbyn was ahead uh, against Theresa May's Conservatives as well so this is not a unique period for Labour to be ahead in the polls against the Conservative government mid-term but why I think we're in a different political circumstance today is that the Prime Minister is now toxic in a way that David Cameron and Theresa May never really were um, Boris Johnson's personal ratings have plummeted and Keir Starmer is now seen as the favoured prime minister of the two party leaders. Labour's also on one question that was in the mirror, I think, at the weekend, either Saturday or Sunday, um, polled ahead of the Tories on economic competence. And that's something Labour has very rarely done and not at all, actually, since the banking crash of 2008. And this is something that despite their poll leads, neither Brown, post-crash, Miliband or Corbyn um, actually managed. But having said that, there are reasons for caution. Is the falling Conservative rating on economic competence, not continence, competence, uh, linked to Johnson's toxicity? Um, for example, Rishi Sunak still has a comfortable lead over Rachel Reeves as who is the most favoured Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, and he also 
leads Keir Starmer on who would make the best prime minister. Now, of course, his reputation may be tarnished by the last 48 hours or week or so of, you know, the, the write-offs of fraud and, the, and his pathetic uh, performance on energy bills today. But at the moment, that's where we are. But therefore, I think the question we should pose is not related to the 2010s, our recent history, if you like, the last decade and a bit, but actually to the 1990s. And I think the big question facing Labour and the Tories, for that matter, because in a two party system, our fates are inextricably linked almost, is are we in 1990-91 or are we in 1993-94? So let me give a bit of background to that thesis. In 1990, if you cast your minds back, or for those who are too young to remember, um, let me tell you, Margaret Thatcher won a landslide election just three years earlier in 1987, winning not a majority of 80 seats, but of 102 seats. So she had a very, very large majority. It was her third election victory in a row. Um, But the poll tax and the economic recessions was denting her appeal massively. Um, She was toxic and her party knew it. Labour under Neil Kinnock at the time had been ahead in every single poll from June 1989 until November 1990. Um, In the three polls conducted before Michael Heseltine mounted a challenge to Margaret Thatcher in in November 1990, Labour had poll leads of 16 points with ICM, 15 points with Harris and 14 points with NOP. For younger people, don't be scared, they were well-known polling companies at the time. Um, even though Harris and NOP no longer exist. Um, And on November the 28th, 1990, a a day I'm sure enshrined in many of our memories, Margaret Thatcher tearfully resigned and was driven out of Downing Street. The next three polls by ICM, Harris and NOP, same pollsters, in early December, gave leads of two, five and four points, not to Labour, but to the Conservative Party. And remember, just two weeks earlier, Labour was ahead by 16, 15 and 14. So it was a 20 point swing effectively um, from Labour to the Conservatives when they dumped Thatcher and replaced her by John May with John Major. Um, and so I think it's important to consider today whether we have a toxic prime minister or a party heading out of office. The 1991, sorry, the 1990-91 thesis is that if the Tories junk a toxic PM and replace them with a less toxic one, then their poll position will recover pretty quickly. Um, so things that support this, like Neil Kinnock, Keir Starmer doesn't have great personal poll ratings. They're not terrible, but they're not great either. And most of the Conservative vote decline at the moment that we're seeing in the polls is not Conservative voters shifting over to Labour in any significant numbers. It's actually shifting to don't know in very large numbers. Only 10% of the people who have moved away from the Tories have actually moved to Labour. Um, so quite small numbers, really. So the question, which is out of our hands, is who do the Tories pick to replace Johnson? And I think if we believe the 1990-91 thesis to be right, or the parallel to be right, then in a sense, this more than any other question defines the next election. Um, My estimation for what it's worth would be if they pick another, and I'll put it crudely, blundering idiot, so a Raab, a Truss, a Patel, a Rees-Mogg, then I think they're in real trouble. But if they pick a more statesperson-like and more as the polling would suggest, not to me personally, but a more likeable figure like Rishi Sunak or Jeremy Hunt, then perhaps the polls suggest they might still have the advantage. Now, the other thesis is that we're in 1993-94 parallel. So toxic are the Tories and divided 
that Labour are going to cruise to victory almost. And it's worth recalling that when John Smith, the Labour leader, uh, tragically died on the 12th of May 1994, Labour was 21 points ahead with Murray in that week, 21 points ahead with Gallup, and 16 points ahead with ICM. Labour have been ahead in every poll since mid-September 1993, and that carried on right through to the 1997 election. And there are some reasons, I believe, that we're here instead. So firstly, there's parallels with the, you know, interesting historical parallels with the levels of corruption and scandals. So we've obviously had Matt Hancock resign in disgrace, Owen Patterson, the prime ministers being investigated by the police. And they have parallels to the kind of 92 to 97 period when we had the scandals involving, and you can look these up if you are too young to remember, David Mellor, Neil Hamilton, Jonathan Aitken, maybe give the Mellor one a miss if you're just about to eat. Um, secondly, I think it's reasonable to believe um, that there's not a plausible figure post-Johnson that can unite the Conservative Party. Um, and therefore, whoever succeeds Johnson will lead it and will face rebellions, much like John Major did throughout his term uh, of office in 92 to 97. However, there's a slight caveat to that in my mind, which is John Major only had a very narrow majority. The Conservative majority in 1992 was 21. And as people will remember, that was eroded throughout the Parliament as there were by-elections, as Conservative MPs died and they lost seats to the Lib Dems and to Labour on occasion. And so even small rebellions led to Conservative defeats in that period. Thirdly, though, in the case for this being a kind of parallel with 93-94, is the looming economic crisis as inflation rises and uh, the cost of living goes up, living standards go down, and indeed, if you like, post-Brexit realities hit. Um, much like Black Wednesday in September 1992, um, it could do lasting damage to the Tories standing on the economy, and that could be fatal for them. I, I don't want to end with my verdict, um, because... I don't know. And it's interesting to kind of put that out there as an historical artefact, but by stimulating a, a debate. What does this mean for Labour today? Um, what are the similarities and differences with the situation in late 1990 and in 1993-94? Um, what can Labour learn from our mistakes after Thatcher's removal in November 1990? Because clearly we didn't go on to win the next election, despite having 16, 15-point leads um, at the time she was removed. And for historical gurus, if you like, and because it was trailed in the, in the intro as well, is the 90s the right parallel? Or would the 50s and 60s, the other period where Labour was out of power for a long period, um, be a better parallel? Um, the period was generally known as Butskellism, when the two parties, Conservative and Labour, were seen as very close together. That's because the Tories had sort of adopted sort of semi-Keynesian uh, policies ad adopted or adapted to the post-war settlement and Labour after the Attlee government in 45 had kind of entered a more reformist phase and got closer but it didn't win the elections in the 50s and uh, and so on and didn't actually win until it became a bit more radical under Wilson in the early 60s. Does that tell us anything for our electoral prospects today? Um, so uh, I'll leave it there because I want to leave more time for debate, there's more I could say but um, I think it's always more interesting to have a discussion and learn from each other rather than have somebody waffle on for too long so I hope that's okay and I'm happy to come back and respond to points or um, anything that the chair seems deems fit really. <laughs> so. Thank you very much indeed Andrew for reminding us of the recent and not so recent past. Um, 
I would like to open this to discussion. Uh, Luke George, you go to you first. Hi, I'm on my phone, so I hope you can hear me okay. Yes, um, we can hear you fine. Perfect. I just have a quick question for, for Andrew, actually. Um, talking about comparisons with the 1997 election, um, two things I, I personally think are quite stark is um, that whatever you think about Blair and Starmer being similar politically, it can't be argued that Blair was charismatic. And I feel that Starmer is amazingly dull. Um, uh, I don't know what, what impact that has when it comes to you know an election. Uh, and second of all, while uh, again politically they might be very similar, um, Blair went into the election promising quite left-wing things like the renationalisation of the rail. Um, uh, I can't remember an investigation into Hills. I can't remember all of them, but um, I feel that. You know, they're quite devoid of ideas of current proof. I mean, I was reading just today in the Evening Standard that they were you know, criticizing the government on the energy problem. And we've got a Labour, uh, sorry, a Labour opposition that is unwilling to talk about any alternatives like renationalization or anything like that of the energy industry. So I just wondered, with those two things, do you think they will play a major part, or, or is it just us and our left wing bubble that notice these things? I think I'd like to go straight to Andrew for that. I think it's really, really interesting personality, charisma. Yeah. Um, policies people can identify with very readily. I mean, I don't, I don't really want to speak about people's, you know, amazing charisma or not. I mean, that's uh, not. I mean, Blair certainly was very charismatic and was a very effective communicator. Um, but he grew into that. I mean, he was on the front bench for a long time um, as well. Uh, I don't think. Starmer will probably reach that height, but I do think um, it's not necessarily a problem. I mean, John Major got elected and he was probably one of the most boring people in politics, let alone one of the most boring prime ministers. He wasn't charismatic, particularly. Um, surprisingly effective on the, on the you know, upturned crate, actually, during the 92 election, I think, on his little things. But he wasn't a particularly charismatic. He had quite a dull, sort of nasally tone to his voice. Um, you know, Clement Attlee was one of the most boring people, but you could say that was before a media age and, and therefore it was less important, perhaps. Um, having said that, um, just to correct you a bit, rail nationalisation had been dumped, actually, by the time of the 97 election. John Smith was still promising it when we were 21 points ahead. He was also promising to restore the earnings link with pensions and to bring in full employment rights from day one, which is actually current Labour policy today again. Um, so, but all of that had been jettisoned by 97. It had been moderated quite a lot and quite heavily. I don't think it needed to be. I think we would have won in 1997 quite comfortably. And I think John Smith is proof of that myself. Um, I think there's very, it's very hard to make an argument that isn't the case, given the margin of victory we won by in 97 and the margin of the leads we consistently held over a very long period from 93 onwards. Um, on the being devoid of ideas, now, in their defence, people would argue um, that we're way away from an election. Uh, you don't announce every policy now. I would counter that and say, uh, and I say this as somebody who's the victim of two snap elections where we weren't able to build enough of a narrative ahead of an election, um, especially the second time, um, because everything was dominated by Brexit as well, didn't help. But um, enough about the 2010s, I said I wasn't going to talk about that. Um, but 
I do think, you know, you do need to get your arguments out there. Having said that, I thought, you know, in all fairness, and I haven't agreed with everything she said or done in the last couple of years, Rachel Reeves, I think, was very good today in responding to the energy stuff against Rishi Sunak. She called for a windfall tax um, on the energy companies to pay for greater reimbursements to people. Um, and, you know, uh, not everything I would want for. Yes, I want public ownership. I mean, indeed, many people probably voted for Keir Starmer as leader because he promised to stick with public ownership. But there we are. Who knows where we'd be? Um, but look, the Labour Party is a democratic party, democratic socialist party, as it says in our constitution. So our role really is to try and push the party in the direction we want it to be in the run up to the election. Um, but I don't think, um, uh, I guess in, our, in answer to your summary question, I don't think Starmer's personality is a, is a flaw because actually I think there's enough of a contrast between him and Johnson at the moment is that he looks like a stable, safe pair of hands, whereas Johnson is a very charismatic, but a risk, and people are seeing the risk. And I think in a sense, John Major played that role against Margaret Thatcher. The Tories almost lanced their own boil. My fear for Starmer is he doesn't then face a Johnson figure, and does he win that battle about whoever's next? There we are. Thank you. Dave Kellaway. Yeah, I'm uh, Dave Kellaway from Lee Valley uh, branch, but I also write for anti-capitalist resistance website quite regularly. Um, I, I agree with all of what uh, Andrew said. I think it's quite correct what he says about the choice between uh, Rishi, uh, Rishi and uh, Liz Truss and, and other people. I think he's right. I think Rishi is a more dangerous uh, candidate than the other ones. I think even more dangerous would be if Rishi managed to link up with Jeremy Hunt as a sort of, uh, if Jeremy Hunt goes into the contest and comes second or third or third or something, and, and, they do an alliance. That would be quite clever, I think, from his point of view. Um, but I think, I, I, I don't agree with the speaker said that Blair had some radical plans at all. I think he, he was very clever, Blair, and very clear. I remember quite well uh, before the 97 election. He was very clear, lowering expectations before the election. He, he said very clearly, I'm doing what I say I'm going to do. And he, he did. He didn't actually do anything very radical. So we should be clear about that. I, I think that the problem with all the discussion, of course, is that um, although we can try and have some uh, effort to, to push Starmer, it's very unlikely, I think, that the left and Labour Party now will be able to make any difference to the programme that Starmer will run on. And it's very clear from the last NEC and all the other events, there is no way you're going to get very radical policies in the manifesto. Uh, that doesn't mean they won't win. I think it's very, very likely, actually, that Starmer will win on a very moderate programme. That's the reality we have to face. So the left has to discuss what do we do in relation to that. Let's have no illusions that we're going to somehow be able to make the manifesto more radical than it is. I'm not saying we give up on doing that, but the key question is how to mobilise and develop uh, an alternative inside and outside the Labour Party uh, in opposition to this and, and to develop a, a, a sort of culture of a left alternative. That's the real problem we've got. It's a big problem. But I don't think you can do it just by working inside the Labour Party to push, to push um, Starmer or steer Starmer as this new group in the SCG talking to steer Starmer more. I just don't think it happened. But he can still win. And it's a mistake for the left to think that because Starmer's party isn't left wing and wing enough, that's why we lose. It's not true. Starmer doesn't need many canvases. He doesn't need a, a very activist base to win the election. That's a myth that the left likes to be. Right? So that's the real problem we've got. How to build now a, a real movement that extends with the people who have left the Labour Party, hundreds of thousands of them left now, and the people inside the party are still there. That's what we're going to do.
Thanks very much, Dave. Um, can I take Frida as well at this point and then ask Andrew to come back to put two? Frida. Hello. Have you got me? I, yeah. I'm on the phone as well, not very good at managing this. I'm Frida Schicker from Stoke Newington Ward in Hackney North. Uh, my own, I was just thinking of my perception at the time, and I wasn't necessarily deeply involved um, at the time of, throughout the Blair election, the ones he won, was that the Tory party remained in disarray. And one was off after the first big win, one was looking at them losing as much as Labour winning, because as I understand it, the vote went down significantly through all of those elections. But I think we've got through six Tory party leaders through that time. So they looked, yes, they didn't look very credible. Um, you know, whatever Blair brought to it in terms of his charisma and so on, there was a context of a very wobbly Tory party. Mm. And, and as far as I understand, um, a vote, you know, total votes, total participation in elections dropped throughout that period. And I wonder if you could comment on that. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, if you can take those. <laughs> so, on um, Dave's points, I mean, I think I agree with a lot of what you say, Dave. I mean, a couple of bits I, I would just slightly differ with you on is about the activist base. I think Labour does need a quite an activist, a good activist base, um, especially to overturn the sort of deficit we've got at the moment. Um, but also, if you look back at historical parallels, the party was growing in the run up to 1997. Party membership hit 430,000, which at that point was a, a modern peak. Um, at that point, and I remember people coming out and canvassing in quite large numbers in 1997. Um, and so I would worry if party membership starts slipping lower from where it is now, I and mean, it's back to around that sort of territory, I think slightly below now. Um, but I, I, I don't, I think, uh, you know, parties need to be motivated, they need to be united uh, in order to win. And that applies to the base as well as the, the PLP as well. Um, and so I think there are, there is, there are some risks there, but um, nothing unites like the prospect of winning and getting rid of the Tories as well, historically as well. Um, but it's, it, I do think it matters. It matters both financially, because Labour doesn't tend to get big, large donations. I mean, they haven't come flooding back uh, at the moment as yet. Um, not that I personally think that's the best way to go anyway, but also, um, you know, as an activist base, the Tories will always have a big section of the media, the press, the majority of it, and they will always have the majority of millionaires, however effective the Labour Party machine is at mobilising a few well-meaning millionaires. And so you need that activist base to counter that. So I, I do think that is important. Shouldn't overstate it, I agree, but I think it is, I don't think we should dismiss it either. In terms of radicalism, I think it's important, and I say this as a party member for 26 years this year, um, you know, when I remember what the party was like for a lot of period when I was a member, um, to say what is current policy now, you know, you might say it will move back in a more moderate direction in the next year or two ahead of the election. But where it currently stands now, they're calling for a windfall tax. They're calling for redistributive taxation on, on a number of things around capital gains tax and so on. Calling for higher income tax is still policy, you know. Um, as far as I know, public ownership of the railways is still policy that hasn't shifted. It's one that hasn't. Um, and indeed, 
um, employment rights for day from day one, which was John Smith's policy, as I mentioned earlier, um, but then was later dumped. And uh, I would just say on one thing, which is very dear to my heart, it's the reason why I joined the Labour Party, around social security policy, actually, when you consider some of the things the Labour front bench was saying, as recently as 2010 to 2015, very much joining in with that striver, skiver, divide, and um, you know, quite nasty kind of demonisation of people on benefits, Again, that's shifted. That, I mean, the whole tenor of the debate has shifted a bit, but actually Labour was fighting to keep the universal credit uplift and so on. And that's the first time in my memory that Labour's been fighting actually to increase, significantly increase, um, benefits to people on, unemployed or, or disabled. So um, while I would say, yes, of course, there's been a, a, a shift, you know, if you like, towards the centre or towards, you know, away from the left, under Keir Starmer, you know, slightly, um, we shouldn't overstate it either at this stage. And I think um, it's important to note that if Labour was elected on what currently appears to be their policy platform, it would be to the left of where Ed Miliband was in 2015. It wouldn't be where Labour was in 2017 or 2019 quite, but it would be to the left of Miliband. So no, I think that's just an interesting point to make. Um, and on, on Frieda's points, um, yeah, I mean, my, my sort of main uh, prospectus was about the pre-97 period but you're absolutely right P um, turnout in 1997 was the lowest I think post-war turnout for a general election and it actually went down again in um, 2001 and 2005 to around 60% from memory I think it was 59% in one of those elections um, and around the same about 61 the other um, it went up to about 67 which is still low in 2017 which was a slight increase we saw increased youth turnout was the main driver of that um, but yeah um, turnout still is around two-thirds I think it dropped slightly in 2019 from memory again but uh, you know Labour does need to mobilize people who don't vote the people who don't vote are overwhelmingly black and ethnic minority communities which are more likely to vote Labour younger people more likely to vote Labour and working class people right across the piece who again are more vote, likely to vote Labour. So if you identify, you know, non-voters, non especially non-voters under 65, get them registered to vote for goodness sake because the odds are they will vote Labour. And also if you are the party, you as an organisation, we um, are the ones encouraging them to vote, they're more likely to vote for us than people who didn't bother to encourage them to vote. So I think that is important as well. Thanks very much, Andrew. Um, can I now go to um... Mick McAteer and um, Suzanne Vagina Thomas, if you could both um, uh, Mick first and then Suzanne. And then, uh, Thanks, Penny. Andrew, good, good to see you again. Yeah, hope, hope you're well. Yeah. Listen, I, I really completely agree with you about the points about needing time to develop the narrative. You know, I think we learned after austerity that if we let the narrative run away with us, then we're kind of lost, you know. And I think that 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 plays on the other side as well. You need time to develop a positive narrative around the policies, you know, and leaving it to six months before the election is too, is too late, you know. And I really agree with you. I think it was surprisingly, uh, I thought Rachel Reeves was excellent today, you know, a bit short-termist. There isn't enough long-term thinking there, but it was a really, really effective response. Uh, but I wonder, could I ask you a question? I think you raised such an interesting point about how economic economic crisis can change the terms of the debate when it comes to political crisis you know i mean i think i was still working in the city when black wednesday happened you know and politics changed nearly overnight you know i remember the 2008 financial crisis really well that done for that done for labor you know in, in, to a large degree and i suspect that um 
the impact of the li on living standards of this energy crisis is likely to be of the same degree as the 2008 financial crisis, actually, you know, in terms of real you know, hitting the pockets, you know, uh, and, I, and I do think there is an opportunity for Labour there, you know, I don't mean to sort of take advantage in a sort of bad way, but if there's an opportunity to create a different alternative narrative, you know, but I am a bit concerned, well, more than a bit concerned about the current platform is a bit passive, is a bit moderate, you know, and it doesn't really grasp not just of the current crisis but the, the future crisis that we still haven't gone away like long-term care and the green green strategy and so on but I, but I wonder and you're given your insight Andrew I think these don't know this don't know group is really really important for Labour and for the Tories you know do you think Labour will have to continue to sort of play this passive role to sort of bring them back or do they have, or can they become more, a wee bit more radical, a bit more forward looking and present a real positive agenda? And can they win that group back through being positive rather than just being passive? Thank you. And Susan. Thanks, Chair. Thanks very much, Andrew. I'm Susan Fadiano Thomas. I'm a member of Cleveland Ward and a councillor in the neighbouring ward of Stoke Newton. Thanks for the analysis and the way you set uh, 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 the setting for this conversation. I just want, if it's possible, it would be good to have your uh, insight or your views around. We've been looking outward but in terms of looking inwards you mentioned the 1997 general election i was around in the clp when we were even uh, membership the old the old clp membership at the time was like a ward now we're like a thousand membership the old of the clp but one thing that happened at the time is that we were enthused we were motivated that wanting to win was either you were left you were right i remember that was in those days you have somebody like luke akios on one side and greta captain graham bash on the other side that when we finish conversing we're going to end up in one of the houses to go and have a drink and catch up it wasn't about center right left moderate we were able to work together back then for the win. And I just want to find out, because this data isn't the case, you've seen people within the parties, like or sometimes the way people relate, the way people engage or work together is like somebody is from the conservative while someone is from the Labour Party. And I just want, and I believe, if we're going to win the next election, we need to know how to work together as socialists rather than center right, left, or moderate. It would be good to know your views about that. Thanks very much. Thanks, Susan. Andrew? Um, two really good questions. I mean, um, Mick, I, I agree with you totally about the impact of the, of the economic crises, both the um, Black Wednesday and indeed the, the bank global financial crash, as we call it, in 2008. Um, I think, so one word of caution, and then I'm going to contradict myself. Um, 
which is always fun to do, but it's good to discuss these things and be honest about the nuanced nature of, of life. You know, um, the living standards crisis that I, we're about to enter and for a lot of people are already in, um, but it's going to deepen over the next six to nine months, certainly. Um, people said that about Cameron and Osborne's austerity era. Um, said, you know, this is going to do it. And I think there was a, a level of complacency within Embellaban's team at the time. The polling was slightly inaccurate and pollsters have adjusted how they weight things now as well, which didn't help build that sense of complacency or didn't help in building that or didn't help in contradicting that sense of complacency. Um, you know, but I think there was this kind of inevitability of the Tories have done this to people for, you know, five years, Labour will, Labour will get back in. Um, and it didn't work out. And that was because the Tories have built a narrative that all this austerity was because of Labour's mess up in 2010. And they had constructed that and it wasn't challenged. Um, and so I don't think um, the same thing is happening now because we've had 10 years of Conservative government. If the economy goes down, it's on the Tories. Nobody is going to you know, hark back to the financial crash. It's not relevant to why we're in the situation we're in today. And that will be on the Tories. So as I said, I'm going to contradict myself a bit there. So I do think it could um change things I, I think actually this could be the death knell for them and that will damage rishi sunak i mean we remember gordon brown let's not forget became prime minister in june or july 2007 in the summer of 2007 and within three months northern rock was collapsing in september 2007 and he inherited an economic catastrophe now who, who was the chancellor just three months before well unfortunately it was gordon and you know, it was a very difficult inheritance. I, I think if Sunak becomes prime minister now, uh, and I think he's, you know, one of the front runners, certainly, uh, if, assuming Johnson goes, um, then he's going to basically inherit his own crisis. And I think, again, he could face a very similar, there's a parallel there to be made as well, potentially. But the thing I'd make, and where I'd link this with radicalism um, within the party, which was Mick's second point, is around material circumstances. You know, we forget, and we always say this in a soft voice, don't we, as Labour Party members, between 1994 and 1997, the economy was recovering, living standards were going up. People, you know, moderation fitted the times, if you like. I'm not justifying it. I'm not making a political judgment over whether Labour's policy programme in that period was right, wrong or indifferent. But actually, the need for more radical policies is sharper now, given the greater inequality, given the greater material suffering that people are going through in this period um, than it was in that period where you know people were getting slightly better off um more or less average obviously um so i do think you know if you look at why young people are flooded to labor it's nothing to do with youth it's because the youth of today are in a worse off position than their parents generation were housing is less affordable wages are worse the wages that a 20 year old or a 30 year old are earning today are lower in real terms than their parents' generation were earning when they were 20 or 30. That's the reality. That's why young people are more radical. It's not because they like Jeremy Corbyn or because they're, you know, they've been hypnotized by communists on campus and all this sort of nonsense. That is why it's material circumstance. And they're having to pay massive tuition fees for those that go to university, which is nearly half now. Um, you know, they're leaving university with 20, 30, 40 grand of debt. That has an impact on you and what you think. Um, especially if you're then going into a job that doesn't pay as much as it should and you can't afford your housing. So, and, you know, and you're never going to get a council house, uh, you know, unless you're in very particular circumstances. So therefore housing's less secure, jobs less secure, and they start their lives in debt. 
that's why it's more radical you know and you can look through a whole period of things that's part of the reason indeed why london has shifted much more solidly towards labor um over the last 20 years again you know it's the housing crisis it's a material basis to why that has happened so um I would say there's there's lessons for Labour there is that they can afford to be more radical, whether they choose to or not, they can certainly afford to be, you know, the majority of the public, the actually a narrow majority of Conservative voters back public ownership of water and rail, you know, the, the public as a whole, two thirds, you know, so again, we can afford to be more radical than we think perhaps or some people think we can be. Um, redistributive taxation again polls very, very well. Um, so there is definitely a, a, an appetite for more radicalism. Uh, than you know perhaps you know what we sometimes denote or what sometimes people label themselves in the party as moderates might have us believe um and that i guess links on to susan's point which is this these labels within the party and can we just unite and get labor elected i think the reason um certainly for me i was a much younger man i was a teenager in fact in fact i was six months too young to vote in 1997 but i was out canvassing for labor i joined in 1996 um the reason I think there was that unity within the party is we'd had 18 years of the Tories and we just wanted them gone. And they were, you know, they were a pretty nasty bunch as well. They were much more bigoted you know, on the whole. I mean, I'm not saying there's no bigotry in the Tory party today, but I think you do have to go back and remember how bigoted they were back then. Um, you know, and, you know, that the Labour Party had certainly been tumultuous over the 80s, certainly, but in the 90s, I think less so um and whereas actually we've had quite big political shifts within the party recently there's been a lot of antagonism within the party i'm not going to get into that whole recent history but you know I, I think unity isn't something you can just demand or that can be just wished for it has to be built and the best way to do it is to build a kind of inclusive kind of program an inclusive atmosphere impl inclusive policy program and an inclusive atmosphere within parties that doesn't you know be one-sided or partial in the way it administers, whether that's, you know, disciplinary cases or how things are elected. If people can work together, then I think that's a good thing. I, I certainly try to, often fail, but I do try to um, myself. Uh, and I think it is important uh, to do that because I think United parties win and divided parties lose. And, you know, we could go back through recent history saying, well, they thought, you know, they caused division here and they caused division there. I think both wings of the party of course their own you know have to hold their hands up over the last 40 years and say you know we've made mistakes um no wing of the party is is uh, you know immune from that but yeah I, I think you know united parties win generally and motivated parties get their activists out and that does have an electoral impact mm. thank you very much andrew i think that's a very good point on which we go to our next um hand up person who's Philip Granville who's the mayor of Hackney the local elections coming up unity has to be built over to you Phil thanks very much uh, for, for, for that and I hope it it sort of leads on from there and what uh, Andrew's just been saying and the sort of questions that Mick and Susan posed huge admirer of yours as well Andrew and what you and sort of John McDonald did and others over the last sort of five five years and back the, the first question, uh, sort of Starmer and the analysis of you comparing it to previous periods, whether it's sort of 1997 or perhaps 2005, big polling leads can sometimes give you that room to be more radical. And so does a polling lead some confidence and win behind us 
sort of send us into a place where we start to really set out a vision for the country? Or do you get that sort of scared of losing the polling lead, the kind of where Ed Miliband ended up, where sort of lowest common denominator, let's just hope we can get to a sort of small majority and, and, and win. And it felt very managerial. And I think obviously what happened next was a reaction to it. And then just link back to Susan's question. I think you partially asked it, but the two main parties are now very, very broad coalitions with lots of history and animosity within them. And you said, is the Tory party leadable by any of the figures you listed? You know, fundamentally, are the two main parties leadable into an election where unity kind of then pays the electoral dividend? Or is there too much water under the bridge? Thanks. Um, please go ahead, Andrew. Just unmute. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I'm reminded of a quote, which I, I, I'm pretty sure is Peter Mandelson. It was certainly attributed to him, if not. But if it's if it's not and it's just a bit of an urban myth, then um, my apologies. Um, I, I think it was him or someone in that era who described their task post 94 as walking along a polished floor carrying a, a, an antique vase, as in, you know, just be careful. Don't don't drop it now. Don't be too radical. Don't scare the horses. Just you know, do that, and they had a massive poll lead. I mean, actually, uh, I think in '95, Blair hit nearly 40 points ahead in the polls. I mean, it was something like 60 percent. I think Labour was on to the Tories 20 or something like that for only a very short period. And obviously, we won by 17 points, which was roughly the gap we had when John Smith sadly passed. So, um, it doesn't inevitably lead to being more radical. I think is, my, is, is the short point I'm trying to make there. Um, and I think, yeah, if you do have a sizable lead, you know there's not the pressure on you to say things to try and garner attention and be um, more attention grabbing as well. Um, so I think there are there are different theories. I mean, ultimately, I think it ends up where the people's own politics, personal politics are. Um, that's where you end up with. And I, I agree with you. I think Ed Miliband, perhaps in contrast, um, is probably a little bit more radical than he let on when he was leader. And I think probably um, without breaking any confidences either, um, probably looks back on his time and thinks I should have been more radical, especially post 2017 when he saw, you know, a far more radical agenda wasn't electoral suicide, far from it. Um, and indeed saw us gain seats for the first time in 20 years at a general election. So um, I think, you know, I, I don't think there's much that is, is automatic about there being a big poll lead and whether we go more radical or go more cautious. It just depends on the politics in play at the time. What I would say is if you look at the material circumstances of Britain today, we do need to be more radical, whether that's you know inequality and poverty, which I've talked about, but also the climate, climate change as well and changing our economic model, which is you know based on a, a very carbon heavy um, economy. Um, and indeed that results in this sort of inequality that we've seen intensify over the last, um, especially the last 12 years, really. Um, uh, on your, sorry, remind me your second question, because I did make notes, but I actually can't read my own writing because I'm scribbling on the edge of a bit of paper. Sorry, Phil. Sorry, um, I'm, I'm cooking as well, hence the camera <laughs> off. Um, it was it was a question, I suppose, building on Susan's point and what you said also about the Conservative Party. So are, oh, any yeah, sorry. Sorry, yeah. are, are our parties leadable, I guess, into a kind of election where you get that dividend from being united? Yeah, I think I think part of the problem for the Conservative Party um, in 92, 97, which is a period I, I spoke about before, is that they knew they were going to lose. They were so far behind in the polls, they were demoralised, they're out of ideas. And I just think, you know, 
at that point, if you think you're going to lose anyway, why not have a bum fight about the future post the election, in a sense? And that's what they did. I mean, all other kind of things going on, scandals and around um, Europe as well. But um, I think fundamentally, that's it. I think if you're winning, it's actually the most unite, one of the more uniting things um, to do. I would say as well, you know, there's a lesson here. Don't go picking fights with your own party as well, because that doesn't help. As I think, you know, Neil Kinnock's period pretty much proves as as the sort of test run of that. Um, that's not to say all divisions within the party were personally Neil Kinnock's fault, but uh, he certainly didn't help heal the divisions, I think it's fair to say. Um, I think, you know, uh, so I think Labour's in a stronger position to be a more united party going into the next election, in a sense. Um, potentially, just because it's ahead in the polls um, and that. But, I, you know, I'd also um, say, you know, the Conservatives historically, I mean, 92, 97 is the complete outlier. Generally, the Conservatives are very good at being ruthless and doing whatever they need, knifing each other in the back, knifing their leaders in the back, if necessary, in order to win. They're the most effective electoral winning party in Western Europe, um, probably one of the more successful in the world, actually. Um, and so, you know, whilst I am sceptical about their ability to unite under any lead, I mean, they're not united under Boris Johnson now, and I can't see a figure that does unite them at the moment, um, just because they are so entrenched. As you said, they're so broad, there's that kind of quite... Um, I'll be polite, maverick kind of right wing Steve Baker kind of ERG group, or whatever it's called now. Um, and then there's the kind of hangers on who are almost like the equivalent of the Tory wets under Thatcher, you know, the kind of Andrew Mitchell, Theresa May herself. I mean, I don't feel comfortable saying her she's on the more thing because she's, you know, been a, was a pretty racist home secretary, but she is now more on that wing of the party. But I, I can't see how that comes together easily um, and amicably. But things can change quickly and the Conservatives are pretty good at that. But I think their electoral coalition, the, geogra the geographic change, we haven't talked about Labour's geographic problems, obviously, either, which are very different to what they were in the 90s. Um, but, you know, the Tories have got that kind of coalition. They've got to try and hold places in Surrey and, you know, where they're under pressure from the Lib Dems more, right up to places like Blythe and so on um, and other places in the, in the so-called Red Wall. So, yeah, I think the Tories have got a tougher task at the moment. But... Um, Thank you very much, Andrew. I'd like to go to Fliss now and then Ed. We're beginning to get towards the end of our time. So if you could both be succinct, that would be really nice. Thanks very much. And um, yeah, thanks for that historical framing. We've actually got um, a plaque on our estate, which was opened by Nye Bevan um, after the war. And um, that was a time when the Tories were moving enormous towards Labour, like you said, you know, kind of the consensus around Keynes and almost public ownership. And then the 97, where unfortunately it was the Labour was not only going away from that, but did get endorsed by the Sun at the time when actually just change was needed. Um, so that kind of brings me on to uh, kind of now. And obviously there's, uh, you know, the Tories have been trying to steal the thunder. Uh, and you mentioned geography, and I spent more time during the last election actually in Stoke-on-Trent and Stoke-Newington, um, and it was very, very difficult. And no, no disrespect to anybody who felt very passionately about um, Brexit. You know, I voted to remain as well, but um, it was a very difficult argument with people that felt very patronised. We've got to really win back, 
you know, the people that Labour is here for, you know, and not just London is easier in lots and lots of ways. And, and that kind of brings me on to kind of um, the trade unions and, you know, talk, we're talking about internal politics. And of course, there's a, you know, age old relationship with the unions. But look at what is happening at the moment. You know, look at what the, the reaction is to the poverty, to to the struggle that people have. Um, there are ballots all over the place. Um, they're winning. Um, I, I sit on um, LSE2UC and there are, you know, disputes that have been like RMT and everything, really, really strong disputes and people going up, but also all the precarious unions too, sort of. So it looks to me, and as to many, to many of us, that actually that's what, what is needed is um, a more radical policy that stands up for the people that is going to redress the balance and, and to be bolder, because otherwise we're out of touch with, you know, our own base as well. Um, and I, I like what you said about voter registration. That's really, really important. We did quite a bit of that the last two elections for young people, for marginalised people. It's really the way to go and probably time for PR too. But that's that's another um, discussion. Thanks. Thank you. Ed. Uh, hi, Anne. Andrew, thanks for that really interesting talk. Um, I really like kind of drawing parallels and um, you know, it's how my mind works as well. But we obviously have one kind of cataclysmic kind of elephant in the room, namely the pandemic. So I'm just interested in knowing how you think that's going to alter the next elections landscape. Sorry to end on a big unanswerable question, but I, I'd be interested to know what you do with that, that particular variable. Cool. Thank you. Andrew. Um, I, I'm going to buy some time and just comment briefly on, on Felicity's points, which I, I, I agree with entirely. I think it's quite interesting how um, the trade unions, both affiliated and non-affiliated trade unions, um, are rightly, you know, there's a squeeze on living standards. That's when unions, you know, need to step up and they are. And it's interesting that there is a, an appetite that's being reflected in ballot results. Um, you know, I've only been looking at this anecdotally, not as perhaps quite um, as holistically as you have, but you know, it does seem to me there is is that um, going on at the moment. And of course, under much tougher circumstances to get a legal ballot result for industrial action as well now, post 2016. So I think that is interesting. I think it is telling. Um, and if you look at internal union elections as well, broadly, um, there've been some shifts, you know, to the left, um, or at least continuity on the left in some as well. Um, and, you know, other unions, you know, Unite is a prime example, have taken a very clear division, you know, decision to focus more on their industrial wing than they perhaps have, and less on the political wing than they have in recent years as well. And that's, I think, uh, you know, a, a sign of, of that kind of reality of what's going on on the ground for their members. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's all just to say I agree with you and to buy myself some time while I try and think in the back of my mind about how to answer the, the next question on the pandemic, really, in some ways. Um, I would say I don't think with what's happened since, and I know we're still in the pandemic in a sense, if you look at the daily figures, there are still, you know, there's 80, 90,000 new infections a day, 250 people dying every day. We shouldn't, you know, act like it's all over and, you know, we can just go out there and start cheering. But, um, it, you know, fingers crossed, touch wood, it is coming to an end um, and there isn't a new variant three months down the line that, puts us all back where we were before um but um I, i'm not sure i, I kind of think their balance sheet is a bit balanced on that in, in the eyes of most of the public we will all have our own um opinions on how they've handled it mine is probably more critical than the average member of the public but i think if you look at opinion polling on it i think the public think they handled the lockdowns okay i don't agree with that but i'm just saying that's where public opinion tends to be it gave them a bit of benefit of the doubt at the beginning um but 
there is you know certainly some animosity around um the levels of waste um on on ppe and the, the corruption within that as well um and also i think anyone who's come into contact with care homes during this period knows how underfunded under resourced they were during this um pandemic and in a sense the pandemic has i, I think the biggest parallel i can draw is and it, it's not like it but it's in some ways it's done what the second world war did which was expose the inequalities and the problems the structural problems of our society in a more stark way than did before and people said kind of we're not going back to before that period and i think if you look at the pandemic it's exposed insecurity in the labor market massively the lack of sick pay um, the lack of job security um you know very different types of contracts and you know you had the huge fraud around the self-employed uh, income support scheme um and you know which Rishi Sunak's feeling the backlash of but you also um I think it's it's shown up the crisis in social care um the under-resourcing of the NHS for more than a decade when it had you know effectively for the NHS real terms cuts under Cameron um and you know we, we went into the the pandemic with 50 000, 40 or 50,000 nurse vacancies and about 10,000 doctor vacancies as well so the NHS was depleted then and I think we're seeing the kind of long tail of that on the NHS and that I think might be the most telling factor is um, I mean I was speaking to someone today who had an urgent cancer referral um, in September and they've just had their you know you're supposed to be seen within two weeks if you have an urgent cancer referral from your GP they've just had their February appointment cancelled so it'll be now going to be at some point in March and that's an urgent cancer referral so I mean you know and that's anecdotal it's in one part of the country but you know from the stats there are huge waiting lists there are huge backlogs and unless substantial money is put into the NHS um, and you know it's very hard to do that overnight because it does require resources infrastructure staffing um, you know that is gonna I think will cost you know it will cost lives frankly but it will also cost the Tories electorally less importantly um, but you know good as well um an upside i suppose i don't know anyway don't record that bit um right waffled on but um you know I, I do think that's quite kind of uh you know if you like the legacy of the pandemic will be what it showed us about our society and then this this kind of tale of it which i think will be the nhs backlog i don't think people will blame the economic recession on it particularly um i think that probably has as much to do with brexit and if i was labor i wouldn't try and pin it on anything other than the tories i wouldn't try and pin it on brexit I wouldn't try and pin it on the pandemic um obviously not be absurd to blame it on a virus but you know i would pin it on the tories and their poor responses to things and i think you can point to things where um labor both under the tail end of kind of jeremy corbyn and john mcdonald and you know for the mass swathe of it under starmer and reeves where labor has pointed out better policies um all through that period so i think labor could be on on strong ground there but you need to be obviously very sensitive in dealing with those issues thank you very very much andrew i'm sure that everybody enormously appreciates your um contribution this evening we've had a lot of fantastic comments in the uh in in the chat so if people have a look at that um that would be great um so thanks andrew and maybe we might ask you back again one day for a a sort of um, post-mortem. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a really interesting discussion. It's always far more interesting than than talking is is listening and and hearing other people's opinions because it sharpens up your own opinions and your own understanding of things. So, thank you very much. Really interesting debate, and I'll um, 
I'll leave you to your war business. And th thanks again for the invitation and the, and the great questions and debate. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Okay.